My name is Dan Mike. I'd like to welcome you to Crossroads if you're new or unfamiliar with this gathering. And um, just hope you can find a place to pray and a place to be uh, here to, to hear the word of the Lord. And so at this time in the service, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles and consider the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. As a community, we've been studying the gospel of Mark. It's just after Matthew, just before Luke, if you're flipping through. And um, it's like week five or six into just sort of our long-term study into the gospel of Mark. We're praying for the kingdom of heaven to just impact us and to just move us. And that's just sort of been a theme that's on our heart. So far as we've been studying Mark, we've seen this just breakneck-paced story, right? Like it's... It's frenetic. Jesus is moving, and he's constantly, the word immediately is used all the time. And I've just been impressed by that and have a desire for that to just be us right now, that Jesus is just moving and interacting, and he's hurrying around in this community and teaching us and and encouraging us and fixing uh, things that are broken in our world. We also see that this uh, has been just a prophetic and controversial uh, story so far where Mark has designed this letter to be a challenge, to be something that's confronting things. And we've opened our hearts up to that so far. And we've seen uh, what, what I have been kind of paying attention to so far in this study is two main things, the people of Christ and the proclamation of Christ. And, you know, he's got people, He's calling people to follow him. And what does that look like? What does it mean to be a disciple? And and how does that work? He's got a proclamation. He's saying something. And that's what Discipleship 101 should be paying attention to. What is he saying? What does it mean? And how can I line up with it? Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. That's his message. It's about a kingdom. He carries that as the king of the kingdom. What does it mean to repent and believe other than to evaluate your life and to think, is there a way that I'm inconsistent with this kingdom? And how can I turn from that and line up? And we're doing that. Message is uh, oftentimes measured by its application or, or its relevance. Like if I came to you and was like, I have an urgent message for you. I've discovered how many gallons of water are in the ocean. It may or may not matter to you. you just, that's good to know, I guess, but it doesn't really affect my life. But if I said to you, hey, there's a tidal wave coming and you're standing on the beach, you might want to get a surfboard or something, like move. Now we're talking. And as you see the story unfold after Jesus is proclaiming this message, it is instantly affecting this world. It's affecting the people that are around him. We saw a story of Jesus going to church and this guy's just writhing with uh, demonic oppression. And what I noticed from that story that I found really profound is that the, the demon spoke the truth. When does that ever happen? I mean, how, Jesus has so much authority and so much uh, power that this demon can't even lie. It speaks to him and says, you are the son of God. That is a true statement. Sometimes we underestimate uh, the, the kingdom and how, and how effective it is 
even in a world that's oppressed. Jesus then starts moving through and and healing people. Peter's mother-in-law, lepers, or or people like we saw last week who have been unable to walk. This is his message kind of unfolding in the community. Last week, we started chapter 2. Well, at least that's what we call it. Mark didn't call it chapter 2 because he didn't line it up with chapters. He probably would have called it those five really controversial stories. Um, If you know, he had to reference it. Scholars reference to the beginning of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 as this Markin sandwich. I know it doesn't sound very scholarly, um, but it's an effective uh, way of referencing a literary feature for Mark. Is this, this is the way that sometimes he communicates. Is He will make a sandwich out of something that he's uh, trying to communicate by putting two uh, phrases or stories on either end of several other stories hoping to communicate something. So in this case... You can see this controversial healing uh, that we talked about last week, bracketed by, in chapter 3, another controversial healing. And then in in between those two layers are three, speaking of sandwiches, uh, controversial eating stories. Um, And so, what do you make of that? All right, I haven't really figured that out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, sorry if this is starting off in a boring way. Um, but the sandwich here is going to be eaten, and then I'll leave some leftovers for next week. But today I want to read to you um, part of that first layer of the controversial eating story in chapter 2, starting at verse 13, and um, carrying with us a knowledge that this is a part of something that's going on in, in the Gospel of Mark. I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of scripture. Jesus, we're so excited to hear from you. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and began to teach them. He began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, and his disciples were there, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinner and tax collector, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy you need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Amen. You may have a seat. This may come as a surprise to you, but I am not a native of Grand Rapids. Um... It was a point in my life where I moved to this town, and I did it on purpose, okay? I visited here. I never even heard of this town before, though I am from Michigan, just didn't have the internet. It wasn't a big part of my life. Okay, neither were maps, apparently, and so I, um, but man, I fell in love with this place, and this was way, this was 2007, and it smelled good, and it was just full of people that were just seemed to be so nice and happy, and anyways, I moved here, and it was just there was a curve. There was a learning. I mean, it was like, how do I fit in? Where do I belong? 
Uh, I don't know if, if anybody else has been a transplant into Grand Rapids and if you felt the same thing as me. Like, what? A lot of people here kind of have traditions, and I didn't really know the, like, the central place of cottages and, like, how that works here and, like, uh, you know, the, the traditions of Memorial Day and stuff that people have just been doing for a long time, and I just started to feel like I wasn't in. How do I get in? There was another times where even lower end of the society was hard for me to get into. Um, I worked at a place for a long time that focused on homeless people and poor people um, in this city. And I remember specifically sitting behind these two dumpsters right by the Blue Dog Tavern where we were eating ramen noodles, cooked on a charcoal fire back there with a battery-powered TV watching Jay Leno. And, you know, one of those guys looked at me and they were like, I can't believe that you're here. You don't really, like, we love you, but we know that you're different than us. And it just became kind of this awkward conversation of like, why are you here? And, you know, I, I don't really know. I just, I was just trying to just be there, right? And stories like this, where we start to look at, you know, who Jesus is eating with and the people that are challenging that and, and who he's calling to follow him, it raises questions right away of who belongs here? Who is in and who is out? What do I have to do in order to be in the presence of Jesus? Are there ways that I can be thinking that can cause me to be farther from him or hinder other people from being near him? Mark, I think, has a lot of intentionality with placing this story right here. I mean, if you think about it, as a writer, like, <laughs> we already talked about discipleship with the Peter, Andrew, James, and John story, right? Why are you bringing up this calling of a disciple again? Not to mention, in chapter 3, he's going to bring up even more, like, generally speaking, the disciples. And so, why did he do this right here? To stop and to, and to focus on the call of Levi, the tax collector, One of the things that I was thinking about is even in the name. You almost never hear him reference as Levi. He actually has a Greek name that he goes by, Matthew. Even in chapter 3, he's referenced already as Matthew. He's the writer of the book of Matthew. Levi is a Hebrew name that has a lot of just cultural relevance to it. I mean, this is not a peripheral name. You know, he didn't get called Bitya or something that came out of a genealogy somewhere. This is Levi. It's like the tribe, the Levites. This is a very, this person was named after a legacy. And Mark puts that right in front of us by, and also describing that the Levi, this guy, has become a tax collector. How does that work? What did he do to get into this situation? There's a phrase that's on my heart that I wanted to just sort of share with you today uh, that I've been thinking through all week, and it's this phrase. If you're taking notes, yes, even you. Yes, even you. As we're bringing up discipleship again, I, I just want to focus on the why more than the what. I mean, it's really important for us to know that discipleship is the basis of following Jesus, right? This was the very first form of what it even looked like to be a Christian. This is the definition of the word Christian, to be a little Christ. I mean, this, was, this is something that we can't get away from. I mean, Christianity has developed over the last 2,000 years, but it will never be less than this. When you enter into Christianity, you enter into a conversation about being a disciple of Jesus, 
Shame on us if we're never asking the question, how am I becoming a better disciple of Jesus? This is the expectation. I mean, it's good to know the what. But if you don't have a good why, being a disciple can become very arduous and can become uh, very works-based. And it can sound like something, something is off. I mean, it's good to know the why. Yeah, these guys were like really intense about following Jesus. The Talmud says that to be a disciple in this time, they reference it as a very painful existence. Um, there's references also in that, same, uh, in that same book, the Talmud, that says that they were seeking to be so close to their rabbi that as he kicked up dust off of his feet, they would just become covered into it. That was their, their following, that close and that attentive. This is the what. This is what it sounds like to be a disciple, but what's the why? Because I know that over time there's been a shift in, in Christianity that sort of, sort of feels like I'm into it, but I, do I have to be a disciple? Do I have to really follow Jesus? And if you don't have the right why, it's going to be a struggle. Because there's so many things in our world begging you to follow them. And the following of Jesus is, is meant to be something that shapes you and forms you into someone who represents him to be like him. It's, it's not just asking the question, what would Jesus do? It's what would he do if he were me? And, and that validation of who you are, evolving into more of a, of a picture of who Christ is in this world, is the plan. But you might ask yourself, why would I do this? Why would Levi just walk away from where he was? Why would Peter, Andrew, James, and John just drop their nets? I mean, come on. This is not a financially wise thing that they're doing here. I mean, this has not been part of their plan. It was not even on the radar. They were doing another thing with their life. Well, part of the reason as to why it affects you and it also affects the world that's around you is that, here's a word for it, there is a promise of fruit. And if you're in a lifestyle of Christianity that is fruitless, then I've got good news for you. Because as, as you start to, to walk down this path of following Christ, he promises you fruit. He promises life. He promises fruit. It's going to look a lot like the, the fruit of the Spirit. And you can't get this stuff anywhere else. And I'm not saying that I think that we should earn stuff. But when you get past this idea that uh, grace isn't about earning it's, or against effort, it's against earning, right? I mean, we're not earning Christ's love. The people who, who like Levi, just walked away from their life, it wasn't to earn the love of Christ. It was responding to the love of Christ. The people of the New Testament of the early church, they weren't seeking to gain love because uh, by being self-sacrificial. They were being self-sacrificial because they loved Jesus. They loved him and they experienced the life-giving power of the resurrection in their life. And so they became a people, much like many of us who are saying, I'm not here to earn anything. I am here because I'm honored to be a part of this. 
Think of the Apostle Paul when he says, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff, Philippians chapter 3, where I was seeking after accolades and I was seeking after uh, status socially, but now it's kind of just getting in the way. What I once considered gain, I now considered loss. If only I might know him and become like him as in his suffering, it would be the greatest honor of my life. This is what it sounds like to be a disciple. Somebody who's, who's saying, I see you, Jesus. I see the why here. You are so beautiful to me. And if there's any way, I can just put everything back on the table and say, form me, shape me into your image and into your likeness in this world. Then please, here am I. Send me. The thing about this calling of Matthew that's striking to me is that he is just not a likely candidate for this role. And it's striking to me because neither am I. Matthew or Levi, he has gotten himself into a situation that's kind of everybody's social nightmare. For whatever reason, he is now ostracized from his own people. And there, let's be honest, he's never going to be in with Rome. He's the kind of guy who has gotten to a point in life where nobody wants to make eye contact with him for many reasons. He, he, you probably owe him money and you know you don't want him to see or, or you just are so furious that he would be siding up with the enemy, you know, that you are just like, I'm not even going to dignify this person by looking at him. Sometimes, you know, the ancients ain't so ancient after all. You ever feel like you're in a position because of your past or what you've done or where you've gotten yourself? You ever wake up one morning and be like, how did I get here? I can't even look at myself. There's just people in my life that I just know they are ashamed of me. And I don't, I mean, what did Matthew think when he saw this crew of people walking by? I mean, could, was, it, would, is it, was it possible that he saw them and just like, I will never be able to be a part of that? How could I? But Jesus said, yes, even you. Notice in verse 14 where it says that he looked and saw him. Maybe the entire world looks past this guy and doesn't want to make eye contact with him and see him. But Jesus looks and sees him. And if you feel like just unnoticed or invisible in your world right now, or if you even have been actively trying to not be seen, I want you to know Jesus sees you. And he wants to invite you into what he is doing. Maybe everybody else in his world called him Matthew, but today Jesus is, wants to, you to know he knows his real name, and he calls him Levi. And he knows your name as well. And you can't manufacture the, the benefit that you get from being seen and being known by God. You can't uh, force it. or All you get to do is do what Matthew did and just receive it. And can you say today that I have received this call? Or maybe you just feel compelled right now to make it a day where you say, I'm going to leave uh, the path that I was on before because Jesus is standing before you saying, just come and follow me and inviting you into his kingdom. And you might not know what that's going to look like and it might not be uh, a part of the, the, the way you had your life set up. It might not look financially uh, <laughs> like... Um, safe, and it will be a little risky at times. But what are you waiting for? 
Even you, Matthew, you belong here. And Jesus will call unlikely people like us all. And he believes in us. And he believes that you can represent him in this world. I'll be the first to say I'm tempted by, you know, this American idea of Christianity that says, like, you can, um, you can set your future up to, to, and say, in the future, I will let Christ form me into his image. Uh, whereas right now, I'm just going to be formed into the image of the American comfort. Or I'm going to let the, the system of the American status form me. But when you see Christ for who he is, and you hear his call, it, it, that's the moment where you say, I'm putting everything on the table and I'm going to let you form me. The plot thickens as Mark continues on. And if there was any debate about who and how this is supposed to affect uh, the conversation, he, he takes us even farther. As the story transitions from market to meal, okay? The characters here that we're introduced to are some people who identify as Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, and then everybody else. <laughs> it kind of sort of feels that way. Like there's this group and then there's this group. These are a little more specific. These are just sort of generally judged people or whatever, right? And so like, here's Jesus, his disciples. And then according to this other group, sinners and tax collectors. So who are the Pharisees? Um, and there's a long story about who these people are, and I'm going to leave some meat on the bone as there will be a central role in the next few stories of, of their background and where they come from. But we can't get out of this story without asking a really important question. Why were the Pharisees so upset about this meal? What, has, what have they been thinking and where, how have they gotten to this place where they're just so frustrated that Jesus would eat with these people? That's the question they ask, isn't it? How can he eat with sinners and tax collectors? So what's a little bit of the backstory there? Well, like our culture, I mean, we don't really actually acknowledge this. But meals are a, a pretty high value sign as to social structures and who we are associating with and who we want to be around. That, that's true for who we eat with. But in their day, it was much more of an explicit reality and not just implied. Um, kind of a long quote for you here from a Harvard PhD New Testament scholar, Scott Barchi. It would be difficult to overemphasize the importance of the table fellowship for the cultures in the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era, in the time of Christ. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. A meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Kind of reminds me of the psalm, you, you've prepared a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Could it be that Jesus is opening the door to these people for reconciliation through this meal, through 
eating with people, sharing and table fellowship with them. Could it be that this wasn't just, you know, he, he needed to just eat, he was hungry, and this is who he happened to be around with, but that this was an intentional moment where he was saying, there's something wrong about the way the world is working, and I am going to move into that and welcome you to eat with me. Now, you might think, why would a Pharisee have a problem with that? I mean, that sounds beautiful. Like, great. I mean, it, it, right? Like, here's Jesus. He's welcoming them to reconcile. Like, let's see where this goes. Digging deeper into the culture of the Pharisee, they have a lot of other things going on with this as well. There's um, a guy that you may have heard of, Rabbi Jason, Jacob Neusner. Jacob Neusner is a scholar on the Second Commonwealth uh, of the Pharisees era, this time of Christ, the Second Temple era. And he says that they have been so centralized on ritual purity and ceremonial laws that they, and they were so fed up with the temple and how that was being run that they started to conceptualize their home as the sacred space where worship would happen. Their home has become the temple for them. Their table has become the altar. They were the priests and their guests uh, were, were brokering over the sacrifice on the table. Now we're starting to see that this space is not a space where you can just welcome in somebody um, willy-nilly for a reconciliation. This is something that's a lot more serious. How can you do this? There is literature that you can read about the way these guys interpreted the Bible. Targums is what they're called. You can see Aramaic commentaries on uh, scrolls of Isaiah, for example. And, and you know that beautiful part of Isaiah where he describes the Messiah coming with a banquet, the Messianic banquet. You can read what their thoughts were on this. And I'll tell you, it's, it's very grotesque, some of the ways that they viewed how the Messianic banquet was going to be done. Editing here some of the imagery. They believed that the Gentiles would be slain and you would walk past them and through them to get to the table in sort of a, like a victory march. But who was at the table? <laughs> Not just Jewish people. You couldn't even come to the table if you had a deformity or if you had something that, that made you impure. Only the pure only the, the people who were elite in, in their religion were able to make it to that banquet. And I say all of this, not to sound smarter or anything, but just to remind you that this is probably why they're acting so warm and fuzzy towards these people at dinner. There are some major mental blocks as to why that they are looking at this with dis disdain. And it's... And it's great because this is the time in the sermon where we all take a deep breath and just say, man, I'm just so glad that none of us are like that. <laughs> I tell you what, it's, the Bible is getting easier and easier to preach as, as time develops here in, the, in our current cultural moment. I can't be the only person who's been kind of fascinated by um, contamination psychology during the pandemic. Um, like, it's just been kind of crazy to look at and see how we're reacting to so many different things and, and how, how that works. And there's been so many tests and studies about how disgust works and, and how uh, we react to certain things that we're told. Um, and there's this book that I like called Stranger God by psychologist Richard Beck. And he points to the Pharisees and he makes a, um, a connection to something called negative dominance and if you're unfamiliar with what negative dominance is, it's that something bad will always overcome something good. Like, 
Okay, like if you've ever been called a picky eater, like you'll get this. Um, oh, that's my watch. You know, recently I, I, I had Jimmy John's with Katie Went, and we were here, and both of us didn't want mayonnaise on our sandwich, but both came with it. And, like, this is negative dominance, okay? No matter what we did to try and hide that contaminant on our sandwich, like, no matter how much good stuff you can put on there, it's done, okay? We're not, we can't eat this. I know there's some of you who, who eat anything, and you're like, that's not a thing, okay? And I get it, okay? <laughs> so for you, here's what I'll say. You could wear the most expensive, fanciest shoes that you could come up with, and you could walk outside and step in dog poop, and the poop doesn't get more fancy or expensive. <laughs> the shoes become garbage, okay? And so that's negative dominance. But the thing about that in the kingdom of heaven is negative dominance doesn't necessarily work. That's the first thing that John tells us about the word who became flesh and the light that shone in the darkness. But the darkness is what? It is not overcome it. And Jesus goes into this, not looking at this people group like, you are going to contaminate me. He has courage and he knows the truth is that if I'm here, maybe I'll contaminate you. And I believe that. Because what, what's the alternative? They make a label up for these people and reduce them down to this word, sinner. Now, normally, when you interact with the Pharisee, they are actually trying to wrestle through a Bible verse or something that they're struggling with. But where's the verse here? What is the sin that these people committed? Was the sin that just they were friends with Levi? The problem with making labels for people is that they're so easy to do and just paste on somebody, but the humanity that they remove is almost impossible to get back. We live in a time that is just so easy and just dominated by the making of labels for one another. It's just celebrated and justified to just look at somebody and just reduce everything that they are down to this one thing. Here's an anti-vaxxer. Here's a liberal. Here's somebody. Here's a felon. There they go. There's that person. They, they had an abortion. Let's label and just reduce their humanity down to this thing that's on the other side of my border. If you have ears to hear this morning, then listen and hear that this kingdom that we are welcomed into is not a kingdom that contributes to this campaign in our world of exiling each other. It's, a, it's the exact opposite of that. It is one that welcomes people in and says, because of something that happened, we, are been, we have been able to be brought together as family. Maybe you have been labeled. Maybe there is something that you did that you feel like is stuck to you and that's, that's all you'll ever be. When people see you, that's all they'll ever think of. And I'm sorry if that has happened to you and if you've been carrying that burden. But I want you to know that word, yes, has been spoken over you, but, over you, but there is a better word. The word of the cross is that though 
You, your sins have made you crimson. He will make you whiter than snow. The word that he speaks over you is it is finished. The word that he speaks over us is you are mine. I have bought you. I will redeem you. And I am able to make you healthy and to make you who you are supposed to be. There is not death, nor life, nor angel, nor demon, or whatever you did in the past, or the present, or the future, that can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Come and eat at this table. You are welcome here. Do you hear Jesus just welcoming you to be with him? The world takes away our humanity often, and Jesus gives it back. Surely he has borne my shame. And he will do anything to give you dignity again. If you want to be a follower and a disciple of Christ, then maybe consider this is something that you place into your rhythm of life. Because sometimes for people who have been labeled and reduced to just sinner, it's just what the doctor ordered. To be welcomed to your table and to be handed some bread and to be able to say, you belong here. You made it home. Circling all the way back to where I started, though it was difficult for me to enter into West Michigan, there was a family at this church, it was a very large family, and, and they, you know, kind of had to manage who they were allowed to invite over because at any given night, who knows, maybe 20 people would accidentally get invited, right? And so they had this thing called freeloader night, and I got invited to it. I didn't know anybody there. I was invited and I went in and I got given a special cup of coffee in my own mug. And the way that this family treated me was that I just, I belonged here. And for the first time, I felt like I was, somebody saw me. This is the legacy that we have as Christians. Not to create borders and not to create walls between each other, but to take them down and to, and to step across that and say, we belong together. And so this week, we decided to, instead of take communion together, to give you permission to be creative with how you could take communion with somebody at your table or this week at a time where you were able to invite someone into your home in honor of how Jesus has invited us all in and say, um, because of the blood of Christ, we have been brought together and we just want to celebrate that. Our world is so divided, but the kingdom of God is bringing us back together one meal at a time. Let's pray. Jesus, if there's anyone here who has not heard you, look at them and call them by name. Maybe to now, just put it on their heart. Follow me. I know it looks upside down and counterintuitive and like you're going to get contaminated or whatever, but just follow me into it. We'll be a city on a hill. We'll be a salty people. We'll be people that the world doesn't know what to do with but can't help but give glory to God because follow me. 
You don't have to follow all of the marketing, all of the, the, the stuff that's just begging us to follow in this country. Just let that go. Drop the nets. Leave the booth. And just see where Jesus is going to take you. If there's any of us here who feel like we have been labeled, Jesus, I pray your power into that uh, person's life, your redemption over them, that they would hear a louder word, a truer word, a word that says you are mine. I have bought you and I love you. And help us to walk in unity uh, and, and, and consistently with this hospitable, generous, welcoming spirit that you've shown us, Jesus, in a divided world. In your name and for your sake.